So welcome to episode 12 of the Privileged Man podcast. In this episode, we're privileged to have with us Richard Reeves. Richard, a Brit-American, studied at Oxford University and Warwick University, laying a solid foundation for his serving as Director of Strategy to the UK's Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg. After this experience, Richard moved to the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., where he still serves as a non-resident senior fellow. Richard's 2022 book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It, was described as a landmark by the New York Times and named a book of the year by both The Economist and The New Yorker. In short, it delves deeply into the challenges facing modern males. In 2023, Richard founded the American Institute for Boys and Men and serves as its president. The Institute stands as a beacon for raising awareness and finding effective solutions to the issues plaguing boys and men in society. Speaking to the oracle of boys and men data was a mind-blowing experience for me, and I'm sure you will find listening to Richard fascinating. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, give us five stars, leave a review and share episodes on your social channels. The more the podcast is listened to, the bigger the impact. And there are men out there who have listened to these podcasts as a first inspiring point to take huge steps of growth in their lives. So a big thank you for listening and more importantly, supporting. Now onto the main event. Why do you feel so passionate about boys and men? Where did that come from? It came from a mixture of the social scientist and the dad. So the social scientist in me, as I was at Brookings for 10 years and doing work on inequality, education, mobility, all uh, gaps, I've always been about what's stopping people from rising and flourishing. That's really the through line of all my work in politics and, and scholarship. And I just kept seeing these data points. I just kept seeing these data points showing uh, you know, the gaps in education now, the much higher rates of suicide, you know, just the deaths of despair. So there was all this evidence that on a lot of fronts, a lot of boys and men are really not doing very well. In some ways, re- you know, relatively speaking, compared to how women and girls are doing on those fronts. And sometimes, you know, absolutely speaking, just getting worse off. And so kept seeing these papers, I kept seeing these numbers. And then I'd look around and see who was talking about this, who was doing the work on this, what, what was the debate about this, and found it really lacking. I found it very political, very partisan, not very fact-based. And it was almost like a, a people would say privately, oh yeah, everyone knows, of course, that being male is the biggest risk of dropping out of college. Everyone knows that there's a four times higher suicide rate than men. Like Everyone knows that male wages are falling. I'm, actually, I don't know if everyone does know that. And I'm not sure that should just be a passing comment. And then as a dad, I've raised three boys on both sides of the Atlantic. And they're on their 20s now. And whilst they are you know, privileged, <laughs> to use your, your term, in almost every imaginable way, nonetheless, the conversations about masculinity, dating, you know, life, patriarchy, etc., was like dinner table conversation. And so, and in the end, those two things came together as both a dad and a social scientist. But, but the big reason is that I felt that the public conversation about boys and men was a pretty low quality and that maybe I could help just notch it up a little bit with you know facts and evaluation and most importantly, a genuinely nonpartisan approach to this. I felt that the whole way it was becoming framed as zero sum. And I just found so many people afraid to even talk about it. That's, that's the bad position to be in. So 
that's the thing, isn't it? And for men feeling as though if they do speak out in any kind of sense, that it's going to be branded toxic. And I've seen you talk about toxic masculinity before, but do you think for the listeners, you could just maybe define toxic masculinity and basically how it's evolved? Well, I can't define toxic masculinity. I think it's incumbent on the users of the term to define it. And one of the reasons that I've come to believe that it is such an unhelpful term is the failure to come up with a a plausible definition. And I think the term, to be clear, I think the term toxic masculinity is itself toxic. Mm. And that's not what I thought coming into this conversation. But, But what people seem to mean by it is expressions... Uh, behavior that is typically associated with men and or masculinity that is clearly antisocial, that's clearly bad, in some cases very bad, and in some way is related to ideas of masculinity. Right? Uh, that's, that's really the best people can do about it. Now, the term actually evolved from the study of prisoners uh, and very a very small group of very violent criminals, men, for whom actually their sense of how to be a man had become quite entwined with with violence, especially. And so so before 2016, the term toxic masculinity appeared about five times a year in obscure academic journals in this very, very narrow way to look at this very small group of men. And then it became part of the general discourse, and suddenly it was used to explain climate change, the recession, boys making passes at girls. And in my own personal case, it was the term that was used to describe the behavior of a boy at high school my kids went to when he and some mates made a list of girls that they fancied. And then a girl saw it, right? And that was toxic masculinity, but got international press attention. The American Psychological Association, who I I should say are, are really moving on this issue now, but they got into real trouble because they couldn't really like they they talked about traditional masculinity, traditional masculinity ideology. There are two big problems with toxic masculinity. One is the just practical one is it drives men away from the conversation. There are very few boys and men who th- who want to have a conversation about which bits of them are toxic and which bits of them are not toxic. There are very few people who are inspired by the the goal of becoming not poisonous, right? All right, that's it's not a very aspirational goal. And the second problem is an intellectual one, which is that everybody who uses the term cannot define non-toxic masculinity in a way that's distinct from femininity. If you ask them, okay, so what's non-toxic masculinity then? They'll say, or oh, nurturing and caring and being emotionally available and vulnerable. Okay, isn't that stereotypical femininity? How is that different from femininity? They say, oh, it isn't, it's the same. Right. So, so non-toxic masculinity is an empty set, and therefore the choice becomes toxic or female, and that's just a horrifically terrible framing for young men to think about themselves through. And this is where you—I heard you brought this term up about being zero sum, and this is sort of the flight to sort of the extreme ends of masculinity as well, right? Which is to own all of the all of those sort of traditional areas and there'd be no room for any of the sort of feminine side of masculinity as well. And it's sort of this big gap rather than a, a fused sense of healthy masculinity. Is that right? The sort of the Andrew Tate's of the world, you know, and the rise, it's given that space for them to sort of breathe. Yeah. I think it's a deeper point behind that that you're alluding to as well, which is that 
we know from broader research about identity, the way to get someone to entrench into their identity, to more fiercely hold their identity, is to threaten it. Mm. Threatened identities become much more entrenched, more fundamentalist, more rigid identities. And so that's how this polarization dynamic works, which is that if men start to feel like, wait, there's something wrong with being a man, masculinity is a problem, the reaction among a very small group of men might be to say, okay, you're right, I'll, you know, I'll join he for she and, you know, do some healing and, you know, try to become more feminine, right? Maybe, or a better ally. And I'm being a little bit unfair here, but more likely, most men are going to be like, well, screw you. I'm going to double down. And that's what happens. And so, and then the more, of course, you see some men doubling down on a, what I would say, a kind of immature or an archaic masculinity. Right? So it's either just an undeveloped, quite adolescent masculinity, or it's an archaic one, which is just out of step with the modern world. The more they double down on that, the more the people on the other side say, well, look, you've got all these boys watching Andrew Tate. You've got these, you've got January 6th. You've got these kind of men acting out in this hyper-masculine or archaically masculine or immature. So that's why we need to do more work to get rid of toxic masculinity. And you say, so both sides essentially pushing each other into these more extreme positions, such that this is a much more heated debate than it was when probably you and I were growing up. But it's um it's it's I think just true that as these these terms have become more contested and everyone just uh, doubles down, it's a bit like World War One, you know, let's dig in and not give an inch, otherwise they'll take a mile. And that's just a profoundly unrealistic and unhelpful framing. It's also interesting to talk about the aging side of things, because growing up, I talked to my wife who's American and I've just been over in the US and Thanksgiving. There is a slight difference between the two because I grew up with Margaret Thatcher. That's how I came into the world, so to speak, having a female prime minister and obviously the queen. So the two leaders were very much female. So I grew up with thinking that it was normal for women to have leadership roles. Whereas in the States, not quite even there yet, as you know, haven't got had the first, it must be time, if you like, to have the first female president. But yet that's still deep down under the sort of under the covers the the pillow chat is are we real really ready for that that's some of the stuff that i have heard in some circles in america do you think that's fair i do yes i, I think at this point and so we probably are about uh, i'm i was born in 69 so we're about the same age not quite but i'll uh, i'll say 82 but you know there's there I mean, what? We're, we're there or thereabouts <laughs> well you didn't grow up under thatcher crikey and so when i'm a bit older so i actually grew up under thatcher in the sense that like by the time i'm 10 any sense of it like she's prime and then she was she was prime minister all the way through my kind of adolescence and you're right the queen as well it took me a while to realize that i think I, obviously i knew about kings because you learn about that in school so i knew that men could be the monarch but actually it took me quite a while to realize that kind of men could be prime minister. Uh, so I agree. And in the US now, it's so weird because the US is simultaneously more advanced on many measures of gender equality. So like in terms of employment and earnings uh, and, and education, American women have just been setting the pace for a long time now, right? Way ahead of most, most other countries in the world. So economically, the advance of women has actually been arguably greater in the US and almost anywhere else in the world. But then you've got this political and cultural thing going on as well, which you say where actually the US lags. So still only one in four members of Congress are women, you know, much lower than in most other places in the world. And as you say, still no female president. And at this point, I don't think that many people 
should feel excited if the US elects a female president. We should feel relieved that we're no longer an international embarrassment for having never had one, right? I mean, it's so late now that I think to sort of celebrate a female prime minister in 2024 would be kind of weird. It would be more a sense of thank God for that. Isn't it interesting how America's already had a black president before it's had a female one? I mean, in many ways, that was even more progressive than having a than having a female it would in be some ways outside. and especially especially here but it's a good opportunity to kind of make this point that you just made a few minutes ago about it not being zero sum so i've actually done work looking at the underrepresentation of women in politics i was quite interested in that i've been in british politics a couple of times uh, and so i'm very interested in that of course and the labor party introduced its kind of women only quotas and and actually a th- more than a third of mps are women now and i think the tories are the only party that's majority male now Whereas when Thatcher came to power, only 5% of MPs were men. So that really was a pretty historic achievement. Now it'd be like, eh, we've had two more. And, it's, and so actually, I've looked at the US, and I've actually even argued for some sort of quota system, because I actually think that when you've got a representative democracy, it is important to have more representation, and there's something very wrong with US politics. And so it can simultaneously be true that there's a huge amount to do for women and girls in a whole bunch of areas, including politics, but also you know venture capital and other areas we could talk about. And here's a bunch of ways in which now it's really boys and men that are struggling in education, say, or in, in mental health. And the part of the big challenge of my work is to say to people, we can think two thoughts at once two things can be true at once and they don't have to be set up in competition with each other. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, the conversation is so competitive. When we hear, I guess, as men, a lot of the time, women speaking up for their rights and for equality and et cetera, it feels quite competitive. It almost feels quite, uh, you've, you've made this happen now, you need to make it right, men. And when men say, come from the other side of it and go, well, we need more like you know, for example, the, in the UK, we need a minister for men. Um, you know, minister for women was came quite a while back. I don't exactly know the date, but at the moment, there's a there's a big petition out to get a minister for men, and that I think shows potentially how things are swinging back towards you know the, a recognition that has been a huge amount done for women, but and men have been left. A lagging within this conversation. I think, I mean, you, and with which you've obviously done an amazing job in documenting. As far as education goes, can you just give a few stats behind that to see how sort of less or to, to showcase how, uh, I guess, vulnerable men have become within the educational system? Yeah. So in every advanced economy now, so if you just take the OECD countries, for example, as a proxy for that, there's a very big gender gap uh, with actually with the exception of a bit of Germany, but a big gender gap in favor of women in higher education. So in the US, there's about a 15 percentage point gap in favor of women in getting college degrees. And back in the 70s, there was a 13 percentage point gap the other way. So in the 70s, men were 13 percent uh, percentage points ahead of women. Now women are 15 percentage points ahead of men. College campuses in the US are close to 60, 40 and rising. Uh, in the UK, I don't have the exact numbers of the UK to hand, but similar trend, girls doing much better A-level, much more likely to go to university. And that's true across the board. And in Scandinavia, and this is interesting for a number of reasons, Scandinavia, because it's seen as those are very gender egalitarian countries, there are close to 20-point gaps in higher education in places like Norway and Sweden and Denmark. And that's one reason, by the way, that, that Norway has created a commission on boys and men. Right. right? Norwegians can do it. Um, because these education gaps in Norway are just vast, and they're really worried 
about what the implications of that are. One of the interesting wrinkles in this is that in the US, and you you mentioned Barack Obama a minute ago, or alluded to him, but in the US, race really plays a very big role in the story, especially about what's happening to men. So it's really black boys and men in the US that you'll see typically towards the bottom of most of the educational achievement kind of metrics. But in the UK, that's not true. In the UK, class uh, weighs much more heavily. And so if you look at educational outcomes, if you actually look at the charts of like going to college, mm. least slightly to go to college are working class white kids, white boys, right? Uh, and there's all kinds of complex reasons for that, including the fact that the schools in the cities are a bit better. So if you look at who's going, who's most likely to go to college by, you can actually do it in the UK by, do they get free school meals, gender and race or ethnicity and rank by that? And what you see is it's working class white boys at the bottom of the table, right? So free school meal kind of white boys, I think then, I, I know that white working class girls are a little bit higher, um, but actually the highest ones, you kind of see Asian black etc in the uk and that's partly for kind of wonky reasons to do with the fact that the schools in cities hugely improved particularly in the uh, 90s and 2000s and that's where you'll find a disproportionate share of uh, bame i think minority and black kids whereas the schools in let's say the industrial north didn't improve to anything like the same extent so it's not like race just race per se but the point is that the class race story varies between the two countries and the reason I raise that is not only because I think it's important to get understand that difference between the two countries, and we could go country by country and talk about other differences. Like in some, it's really geography, in others, it's you know, whatever. It's that this should be, to some extent, an empirical question. Let's go find out what the facts are, right? Who's struggling most in the education system? Well, let's go find out. And it turns out that in the US, it's black boys and men. It turns out in the UK, it's not. It's working class white boys and men. And so you've got to go find out. You've got to be led by the data. But some people find that hard. It's what Ezra Klein called a narrative violation when I talked to him for the New York Times podcast. is like, these are narrative violations. If you have a view that one group is always above another group, regardless of the domain, what do you do when you find that the facts go the other way? Right? What do you do when you find out that actually white kids are doing worse than black kids? on one thing. Uh, well, the answer is you note it and then move on and hope no one notices. Too often, that's the answer because it's uncomfortable. It goes against our political priors, maybe. But our discomfort is a very bad reason not to face problems because someone's going to point to that. Someone's going to point to that problem. It's not if it's not us. Well, I'm glad you are. And you know, a couple of podcasts ago, I had an MP on and he was talking about, I asked him very clearly and openly, you know, are there special interests in politics? And are, what is the actual timeline for a political party to actually look at their policies? And he was very open about it. Dr. Dan Poulter, he's a Conservative MP for Suffolk, or a part of Suffolk. And he basically said, yes, there are special interests. And yes, we look at a five-year timetable. So as far as the educational system goes, it's a systematic issue, isn't it? I mean, we have got a significant issue. The politicians and the politics are not going to be able to sort out, for example, what you just said about white northern boys, because actually, politically, it doesn't really make much difference to them whether they do well or not. But it is going to have a considerable effect on the fabric of society. And, and once again, it's going to be up to the emergency services and I guess public sector workers to pick up the damage in years to come. First of all, it's great you're engaging with politicians. And I will say that 
actually the UK on some fronts is moving a bit faster than some other countries. So for International Men's Day this year in 2023, there was an announcement from the government that they're going to have a men's health ambassador, mm-hmm. that they're going to have a task force looking at men's mental health, I think, prostate screening. And so it wasn't it wasn't what a lot of people who had been advocating for men had hoped for, but it was it was a lot more than nothing. And I, I just want to, I mean, I've been, as I mentioned, I've been in government a couple of times. And you're right that, of course, you know, people have to think on certain timelines, which makes it harder to do long-term work, particularly around things like education. But I've actually come to believe the signaling effect of policy is something that we shouldn't underestimate, even if the practical implications of that policy might take a while to be felt. So there's this tendency sometimes to say, well, this is all kind of, there's just these culture war issues, right? So you've got to lean into cu- whatever the culture war issues are. Uh, immigration or EU in the U- in the UK, uh, immigration also in the US, but things like gender, race, whatever. But I actually think that if people feel like they're not being seen or heard, that they are somehow being overlooked by the elites, and that could be any number of groups that could have, you know, not that long ago, I think it would be a fair claim for, you know, lesbian and gay people to make, right? But we've seen huge progress on that front. But if we assume, for example, that white working class communities in the UK don't feel sufficiently uh, paid attention to by politics and politicians, an initiative to help white working class kids in the North, and I'm not saying how you'd sell it that, you know, but, but it was very clearly like, we recognize we're not doing enough for these industrial heartlands. Your kids deserve better, and we're going to do better for them, etc. Now, that will take a lot longer than next year to have an effect. But politically, it might make people feel, you you see us, you've heard us, you're trying to do something. And Mm -hmm. so that line between politics and policy isn't quite as bright as I used to think that it was, and that a policy can have a political effect by the signal that it sends about who I care about, who I'm for, and whether I see you. And so this is part of the argument I have with policy wonks in the US is that you should do these things because, say, for boys and men, because you should, right? (laughs) And here are the policy reasons why you should. But another reason is because it might have a disproportionate effect on the culture because right now people can come along and say, and the men's rights activists will quite often say this, they'll say, well, they don't care about us. You know, the elite don't care about us. And they sound plausible when they say that. And so you could blunt that by doing stuff for boys and men. Right? And being seen to be doing stuff for boys and men actually is a cultural intervention, even if the policies themselves will take a long time. So the stuff I just mentioned in the UK, about an ambassador, a task force, you can really roll your eyes at that. Uh, you know, like, really? What difference is that going to make? Okay. In terms of policy, that might not make a difference for quite a while, if at all. But Politically, it might just help to soften this sense that a lot of men have now that they are being neglected. Very interesting point of view. And I guess there's always more that can be done, whatever policy and whatever, whatever, whatever branch of government you're looking at. I mean, everything has to start somewhere. I often talk about this, and you know, people say when I've talked on social media or giving my story and background, they're like, oh, you're so brave, you're so courageous. And I, my point of view is that well, I didn't really see it as brave or courageous, I just see it as my truth. But if I can be truthful and it brings maybe a door just slightly open, you know, five degrees open, if you open up just that 5%, 
Well, that door then swings open. It may take some time to do it, but metaphorically, it will swing open. So, you know, that's an interesting point you bring up. You're sort of cracking the ice in a way or giving permission permission space around it. And yeah. I, I think that's been true of a lot of the work I've done. I will also say that people will say sometimes, oh, that's brave to be. You know, I write in my book, people warn me against this. And occasionally people will say that this was a brave issue to go. And I have to tell you, I think that this is going to sound very male, but did it really set the benchmark for courage that low? And I actually have this picture. I keep this picture of my uh, great-grandfather on my phone. And the picture is taken of him just before the Battle of the Somme that he fought in, and just before he was badly wounded in the battle, which meant when he came back, he couldn't go down the mines anymore. And so he had a much tougher time making a living. I tied Bess. So he's on the Welsh side of my family, tied Bess. And I'm like, and what I do is I have this little conversation in my mind between me and Tide Bess as he comes back, badly wounded after the Battle of the Somme. And I try to explain to him how brave I'm being by writing a Brookings Institution Press book about boys and men and enduring some really nasty comments on Twitter and occasionally the horrible email or a difficult question at a public forum. And I say, don't you think I'm brave, Tide Bess? Look how brave I'm being. And I just imagine the look. And I'm saying that kind of just, but like, really, has it become a mark of courage to just say stuff? <laughs> as long as you do it the right way. Uh, so anyway, that was a digression. But I worry if it's true that it's brave to just, and it's like, a, a, that's a triply a reason to do it, right? Because it shouldn't take courage. It shouldn't be a sign of courage to do any of this stuff. And I absolutely love it. I love that story. It's so interesting and so feels explains the level of suppression that men have currently for me is that deep level of what i've got to say is either going to be shamed or is not good enough it's unworthy to be spoken and it's like either people are going to like take the piss out of it or they're going to shame me because that's sort of where we're the sort of culture that we're living in and i think that's a huge thing if you're a man to to hear that there are spaces and there are places where you're not going to be shamed. So if you feel like you've got something to say, go out and find that place where you're not going to be shamed and start to you know, get that through the door, what your authentic voice actually sounds like, so that taking that into the world isn't so scary. And yeah, on the yeah. other side, if there are women listening to this, like hear how shamed men are or how they feel, because it is actually seen as being brave and courageous nowadays for men to actually just speak their truth. And that, I mean, if we want to talk about living in a mad world, that is living in a mad world. Mm. And add to this, what do men do? I wrote this in a LinkedIn post the other day. What do men do when they feel suppressed and they feel put into a corner while they fight? So if you want to have a look at what's happening in the world at the moment, it's what suppressed men do. We fight and we box out of the corner and we've got to stop putting, specifically talk about privileged men, stop suppressing and putting men in these boxes because they're, all they'll do is fight. We hear people out and have the spaces to listen to each other, no matter how privileged they seem. Right. I mean, like, <laughs> just just because you're maybe you do have certain kinds of privilege right it doesn't mean that what you say isn't isn't intrinsically wrong <laughs> doesn't mean you might not have valuable things to say and it might and it also doesn't mean there are many ways in which you might be struggling 
or suffering, right? There are no lines around who's allowed to suffer and in what ways. And I think that's important too. And so having more compassion around this is important. The only thing I'd add to that, I agree with all of that, is there's a bit of a vicious circle here where if men don't feel they can speak up or they don't speak up often enough or they don't get enough opportunities to speak up or they're worried about being shouted down, it kind of builds up in them. And so then when it does come out, it sometimes comes out with much more anger and force and frustration behind it, perhaps, than A, it necessarily warrants, and B, than is helpful in terms of persuasion. So I was at an event recently where a guy was speaking, and I know him quite well. He's a lovely guy. He's you know, in the men's movement, and he spoke at this conference of mostly academics and practitioners and stuff, and he was basically talking about why don't we have an office for men's health, and men's suicide is so high, and why are we ignoring these issues and stuff? And I was sitting next to a young woman, feminist, and and she said, I had to keep reminding myself that I agree with him mm. because his tone was viscerally unappealing, right? Her emotional reaction to him was recoil, right? What she felt and saw was an angry white man, angry white man shouting about this stuff and like re- really angry and right. But for him, and I talked to him about it afterwards, for him, it's like, I almost never get the microphone. And this stuff's been building up in me for a long time. And so, by God, when it comes out, it comes out. So, the problem with that <laughs> is that you're not persuasive when you do that. Mm. But but that's the necessary consequence of not being able to talk about it all the time, right? If you Let's say you have a thought that you don't express every day for 100 days along the same lines. Then on the 100th day when it comes out, it's going to come out more volcanically. Right, it's going to be. I've been back to your point about suppression. It might fight, but also just get angry or come across as like. Whereas, if you could just say this all the time, if you just speak naturally, authentically, as you say, and be wrong and be willing to be wrong, then your tone is also likely to be calmer. And you can just say, like someone says something about men, you can say, "Well, actually, I don't think that's true." Here's my experience. You can say it calmly, and then maybe they agree, maybe they don't, but and then everyone moves on. But so. I'm not blaming anybody for this. I just noticed that cycle. Men feel they can't talk. So they don't talk, they don't talk, they don't talk, they don't talk, and then they shout. Mm-hmm. And shouting men really put a lot of people off. And then the women say, there's toxic masculinity. You see, look how angry those men are. <laughs> and so the cycle turns. Yes, it's, uh, it's a great explanation. It's a really great explanation. I've taken that into the family arena as well and seeing the level talk a lot about it family dynamics and how men feel nowadays being fathers and the sort of slight contradiction or confusion that they feel in their lives about the role of being the leader, being the breadwinner, if you like, or not, and not being the breadwinner and what is their role and that they're married to a highly successful woman or or just a successful woman. It's sort of seen as this should be a very natural transition for men to understand how to do this. Yet, like the whispers and behind the scenes are, I'm feeling lost. Um, You know, there's a lot of men who feel sort of lost and I think, and that explosion can, I've seen it a lot over the last couple of years, marriages breaking down because the the man has felt so suppressed that it's then just come out in acts of adultery or acts of um, quitting jobs very quickly and or 
things that are not necessarily rational. And it always comes down to this feeling of not being feeling safe to express actually what their truth is. So yeah, and just sort of taking that and elaborating on that sense of insecurity on or unsafe or feeling unsafe to express their truth and how it rolls out into the family nowadays. Yeah. And I, so I was a stay-at-home dad for a while and you know, the dynamics you just described are absolutely run through my marriage and how you negotiate those marriages and those roles, just really hard. And actually it takes quite a lot of skill. And so I think the demand that of the, having the skills and the self-awareness and the communication skills, like it's just much, much harder than, than it used to be. Right. And also for men who've got, who are in a position where maybe they're still doing okay economically, or they, they have decently developed emotional skills. I mean, it's hard enough for them, or you know, I'll immodestly say us, let alone for other men, right. Who might be struggling more with that. And this transition, like the speed with which we change the economic relationship between men and women. I mean, it's happened like in a generation, right? Just kaboom. And you just don't have social changes that rapid. A fundamental and positive change, which is the rise of women economically, and therefore a massive change in the economic relationship between men and women, without that being a bit of an adjustment. Right? <laughs> and, I, and I've been guilty of this in the past, which is, Sometimes to say to men, well, just get with it, you know, get with the feminist program, you know, what's wrong with you? Be more enlightened like me, read more Jermaine Greer. And that's sort of a little bit unrealistic and lacking quite a bit of compassion when you're saying to men, we're basically asking you to turn like on a dime. So I use Americanism, right? On a dime, right? Reinvent yourself overnight, buddy. That's tough. But at the same time, of course, we welcome the economic rise of women. We welcome the cause of this recalibration that's taking place. But recalibration culturally of this scale is super hard. And also to treat men like where they are, rather than just treat them as kind of like embryonic, you know, feminists, you know, just need to keep working on them, keep chiseling away at them, and then, then they'll get it. But to be clear, I, I'm a feminist by, I think, all res- reasonable definitions. I'm very proud of that. But just think, treat men where they are. And and I was thinking about this, you know, weirdly, we have some friends going through a very difficult marital situation who we're going to see tomorrow. So I'm thinking about this a bit more acutely than before. And part of the issue is the failure of the guy to update his idea about what a provider is. Mm. And I was thinking about how I'm going to talk to him. And if I say to him, look, male breadwinners are dead, get with the program, you should stay home, etc." That's not going to cut it with this guy or perhaps with most guys. And so what instead what I'm going to say is it's incredibly important that you're a good provider. To your family, right? That is what it means to be a father and to be a man is to be a good provider. That what it means to be a good provider changes over time in different cultures and different places, right? And so actually right now, the way to be a good provider might be, for example, to do a little bit more with the kids around the house or to do this or to allow your wife who's flying economically to fly because that will bring more money into the household and be good for your kids, right? So what we need, I think, to do is just reframe and update a little bit our sense of what it means to be a provider, but still say to men, you need to be a provider. Now, that sounds incredibly conservative on its face, right? So don't we need to get past all of that? And like, well, easy tiger takes a while. And we know that for about, well, for as long as recorded human history, men have defined themselves as protectors, providers, and, and reproducers, right? I don't think we should assume that we can just evaporate that in a couple of decades. 
like let's be a bit more humble about the pace of change here and so lean into this idea that men have about being a provider and make that a really noble thing being a father and a provider is a noble and great goal and again going back to that zero sum analogy it's like you don't have to be a zero sum provider it's not like all or completely nothing right no no it's a bit of everything and actually the the questions in surveys about women want men who have breadwinning potential which is still true a colleague of mine said that's a proxy question for does he have his act together <laughs> right yeah. and because there isn't a question on these surveys which is saying does this guy have his act together and so the closest one on the surveys is to, you know, is he does he have good economic potential because right? the labor market is a very good signal of whether you've got your act together it's really hard to make money if you're a mess right so it's a good proxy. And of course, some of it is about the economics, but also I'm just thinking about my main role. I'm just being very personal about this. When I was at home, kind of looking after my kids, I would organize their play dates. We cycled to school. I had basically semi-adopted some other kids. I became the local scout leader, reinvented the scout group, organized camps for all these boys to go off. I became a kind of local volunteer. Sometimes would take my kids to where my wife was so that she, you know, I think I was a provider. I think I was providing structure, love, care, adventure, risk, community. And I think I had my act together. And I think what women are quite often saying is, look, I don't necessarily need him to be the patriarch and make all the money so I can stay at home. I need someone who's in this with me, shoulder to shoulder. We're partners. And our roles might change over time, but I need him to be a full partner. And what that partnership will consist of will vary over time and vary between people. And so the danger is that this is where I have a lot of issues with conservatives is that they very often say, yeah, we need men to be the old fashioned men again. You know, they need them to be a breadwinner and provider and come home and then discipline the kids. And like, no, no, sorry. Did you, did you not look at the economic trends of the last 40 years? Sorry. Did you, did you miss that? Right. Did you, did you not see what happened? And by saying to men, the only way to be a successful man is to be like your dad or granddad was, is, is as much of a fool's errand as saying to men, you should just be like a woman. Both of those messages, which you, and I say this in the book, is like your left is saying you should be like your sister, and the right is saying you should be like your father or your grandfather. And actual men in real life are like, well, I can't be like my sister because uh, I'm a guy. Sorry about that, but I am actually a guy. But uh, I can't be like my dad or my granddad because they didn't have to think about their role because everyone knew what their role was, and they knew what their role was. It's like my dad's role, be a breadwinner. Duh. So could you help me out here, right? And neither side of the political are just able to say it's a complex and messy and difficult world and a lot of men are really struggling in it and let's help them for the love of God, let's help some of them. Oh, it's like a ah, in my body. <laughs> because it's so true that, you know, the two sides of that are, are like got to learn to listen more and we've got to learn to express more as men. And uh, well, I guess as women, we've got to learn to listen to each other. Be so much better at listening because it's actually that when you talk about it like that, it's the meeting in the middle. And at the moment, it's so polarized, we're so out on the edges of of this conversation that it's very, very little room in the middle to actually hear what it, one another's saying. You're right. It has this has all happened over the last twenty to thirty to forty years. So everything that I was brought up with i was still brought up in a in a very conservative 
even though Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, she was the only female in her whole cabinet. So, I mean, it was still very conservative and that still imprinted within me that, well, she was prime minister, the men are the leaders. And I was brought up by a father, you know, corporate accountant in London, grandfathers, you know, did the same corporate thing as well. And this is part of my story that my body just basically said no to me, age 30. That's not what your, this is not your path. I was very dyslexic. I am very dyslexic. And it just was not going to be my strength to be in competition with someone else to read leases. I was a chartered surveyor. And so I had to find myself again, but it took a long time for me to, I guess, in some way, reparent myself to be able to listen to myself and to actually hear that I was not going to be my father and I was not going to be my grandfather and that was okay. It was okay that I was going to be something different and do something different. And I could still be a success because, of course, there are all sorts of money issues that go along with that and lifestyle choices and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or perceived beliefs behind that anyway. So it took me a long time. It also took people around me to get a healthier bunch of people around me, both men and women, who were going to actually hear me out and listen to what that meant for me. But a lot of people, a lot of people from, I guess, from my past and and the males that I was hanging out with at the time you're gay, mate, you're a pussy, you're, you know, what are you talking about? That's, you know, just get on with it, as you were talking about earlier, Richard. And then from a female point of view, that's amazing. That's great. And then you get into, I get I got into relationships where it was like, well, why aren't you providing? You told me, you know, this is sort of not what I was expecting. And I was like, well, I'm just exploring my own way in life in this very feminine role in this very, you know, as you know, I was living in Bali. So I'd done all the healing and I'd done, you know, all of the things that you'd expect out of going living in Bali. And what I had completely gone away from was I'd let all my masculine traits go because that was totally toxic. (laughs) So coming back and being more balanced and being more in the middle, but it, it takes, you know, and I was very, very lucky. I'm very privileged to have had that time in my life to go over and explore how to get that balance. But I'm here in my role now to actually support men in trying to find more balance. It doesn't, it just doesn't have to be a zero sum game. You don't have to go and live in Bali. And again, you don't have to live on Wall Street or, you know, live in the city of London and be this Uber banker like you used to. There is room to have a more balanced provider type life. I love it. And even also just to uh, I think show show agency and be be the I'll use the, the gender term but like a master of your own destiny. And I what I hear from a lot of young women about the young men, particularly in the dating market and so on, it's it's actually quite rare for them to say, you know, the problem with these men is they don't earn enough. What they say is the problem with these men is they can't decide what the hell to do with themselves. And they they you know I mean I, and I sometimes say to young men. Where if a young woman who you're dating or kind of seeing and says, you know, what do you want to do tonight? Or what do you want to eat? The very, very, very worst answer is always, I don't know, you decide. Or I don't, I don't know. Right. Yeah. That passivity, that sense of like speaking your truth, naming it, even if it's something as simple as just, I want this. Right. I had this experience. I had this experience the other day with my wife and she just asked me, 
should I wear this or this? Right, we're going for dinner. It's actually our anniversary. And she said, do you want, you know, should I wear this or should I wear that? And I will say to you and to your listeners, hoping that she doesn't listen to this one, I didn't care. But I very decisively said, the blouse, the blouse, right? I was just very decisive. She said, great. I love how decisive you are about that. Because, and she's an incredibly successful professional. She was actually, what she wanted on that evening was to wear something that I liked her in, right? Mm-hmm. No, that's what she wanted. I don't think that's an anti-feminist idea. She just said, I want to look nice. And the person I most want to look, to look nice is it. So she asked me. And as I said, privately between us, I didn't care. They, they should look great in both of them. But I just like, blouse. She's like, oh, I love that. Why right. did she love it? Because it was decisive and it was clear. And it was like, I didn't say, what I didn't say was, I don't mind you decide you look great in both. And you see so much of that, so much of that going on in relationships where actually men depower themselves. Right. And it's what I did, uh, our marriage. And this is part of the journey to this work too, is that I came to believe that in order to be a good feminist, in other words, a good partner, that I had to essentially kind of just extract the masculinity from myself and that my masculinity was the problem. So I'd been reared on this, and I was a very, very strong, you know, strong believer in this. It sounds like we have similar paths around this. And, mm-hmm. and actually, that just wasn't working. Like there were just parts of me that were being suppressed, et cetera. But more importantly, parts of me that my wife was saying, I want that, right? I want a partner and I want someone who respects what I want to do and I want equality. I, I want a guy. If, if I wanted to be with a woman, I'd be with a woman, but I actually choosing to be with a, a man. So could you actually be a man? That would be nice, you know? Right. And I'd sort of forgotten that I was a man. Yeah. Oh, wow. It is, you know, the emasculation. We're constantly seeing this on social media and it's quite, it's so alive, uh, the, the shaming of men that we take this into relationships and then sit there and be a woman in a man's body. A lot of, and you can say that for women as well, who are, who are compensating. It's a lot of women and, you know, men in women's bodies, if you like. I mean, I'm talking about metaphorically <laughs> as opposed to... But no, you're right. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, I use this example, I sometimes say, look, actually... I'm as we've already established. I'm much older than you, um, <laughs> uh, and so actually, I remember the '80s a little bit. And so, but I sort of remember actually. There's this whole moment during that kind of you know, where it's all about women wearing shoulder pads, yeah, doing assertiveness training, power pads, and basically the message to women was: if you want to make it, then you better you better start acting like a man. Right, even uh, voice coaching. In fact, we, you mentioned Thatcher. Famously, Thatcher did this. Right, actually. So you need to put shoulder pads on to literally make yourself look like a man. Right. Then you need to do assertiveness training because we know kind of men are more assertive. Right? And then you need to stand in a certain way, and then you should deepen your voice so that you're taken more seriously. Because no one will take a squeaky woman's voice seriously. Whatever. Whatever. That, that was that was the idea behind it. And then a lot of women just said, "Fuck that." Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Yes, you can. Uh, fuck that. I'm like, I'm going to be a woman. Actually, thank you very much. I actually don't think I should have to put things on my shoulders to make me look like a man. But I'd also like to be CEO or president. Thank you very much. Despite being a woman, I don't have to stop being a woman to have those things. And and that was a great breakthrough. And I'm not saying it was completely successful. A lot of women, when I say this, saying, "Well, I don't think that's true." I think you know, there's still a bit of that. But I'm like, well, I think go back to the 80s, and you'll find there was a lot more of it. There's a bit of something similar going on the other way around now which is actually, if you really want to make it, you've actually got to be not masculine, right? You've got to kind of you know, feminize your affect. And that's, 
equally unhelpful and damaging because what you're basically saying to people is don't be you and the thing is that men and women are all very different these are differences at the average like as thatcher proves but as many other people prove and you know and given that we've established that hope my wife isn't going to listen to this i will say that i'm much more agreeable than my wife and so on average women are more agreeable than men this is a personality trait the psychologist right more agreeable more concerned what other people think of you more concerned to be seen as agreeable, right? And I'm quite high on agreeableness. So a bit of a problem for me is that I, I kind of worry if people like me or not, right? My wife's much lower on agreeableness. She's more disagreeable than I am. And I love her for it. And she's the woman. And so like, just can we, like the whole point of this exercise in the end is to sufficiently honor the differences between men and women to not be trapped by them. So that we can depart from them and we can be ourselves in our masculinity and our femininity and everything else in between. But the way we're talking about it now, by pathologizing one or the other, by forcing us into these binary positions where you've got to be a dad or your sister or whatever, is it it's actually incredibly cramping and very, very unhealthy. Yeah. It's very interesting, particularly in my I'm married to an American. And so I I get this, I do get culturally sometimes she really pulls me up and one thing that what you're just talking about just now has brought me back to when i was talking to my daughter and she's now four and she goes i want i want and i go to her tula it's i would like and my wife goes why can't she say what she wants mm. right and i i go well because it's it's not, it's rude and unlady and unlady. No, I, I, I didn't say this out loud, but I was thinking it's unladylike. Um, and there is the programming, right? You know, there is the programming, even with, you know, doing this for 10 years of like self-awareness, I'm still, still learning through my daughters and learning, you know, th through having a healthy marriage and a healthy relationship where I'm open to being criticized as well as standing up for myself, of course. But it's, I hear these things instead of going, you know, fighting against it, I go, mm, actually, you know what, everything when I was growing up wasn't, wasn't necessarily the way it should be. And so I'm more open to hearing and listening to this kind of stuff. And I was just thinking, you know what, I'm still at a 42 year, 40, 41, 41 year old's body have this sense of kids aren't even allowed. And maybe there isn't a little bit of women aren't allowed to say what they want. Mm. And that's just, and I had to really recoil from that and go, wow, that is, that's, that's really something, you know? Yeah. It's hard to tell what, right. Cause they've got big cultural differences there as well, as well as the gender thing, of course, too. And there is, there is something more, sometimes more direct about Americans stating their, you know, their desires and their wants. And I've had that kind of in in my relationship too, is that you know, my wife would be much more like to say, I want X and I don't want this and I don't like that. I mean, it's been really interesting. So for example, we have like a rule in our house that she's introduced. No one has to pretend to like presents. And so, whereas, of course, Brazen are much more, in this case, a more stereotypically British household is you over a present and you'd hate it. And you say, oh, thank you. That's so thoughtful. And then go and give it to Oxfam or whatever, the, you know, the next day or whatever. My wife will be like, you know, I'll, I'll just bought a piece of jewelry or a clothes or, I mean, those are usually destined for disaster, but I kind of buy her. And, um, and she just says, uh, well, thank you so much for this, but I hate it. Absolutely hate it. Uh, um, 
<laughs> that's so great <laughs> there's no artifice there's no you know there's no pretense it's just like yeah i, got, I absolutely don't absolutely hate it and it's given me permission to do that as well to be like a bit more actually just, kind of just saying not not pretending right and there's so much pretending that goes on and i'm not saying there aren't kind of necessary pretenses sometimes too but you've added a gender dimension to it as well and and i would say that there has historically been a bias against women stating directly what they want, right? They've been supposed to imply it, right? They're supposed to drop the handkerchief for the gentleman to pick up, right? Rather than saying, let's go on a date. I don't want to lose all, I don't, I don't think it's something to that that's probably probably a little bit fixed, right? But actually, it's been a real, real progress to say women can state what they want. What we don't want to do is lose along the way the idea that men can also state what they want and that it might sometimes be different to what a woman wants um or in the relationship what they want and that's okay too mm. and if we're going to be really honest about this i think sometimes and here i'm thinking a little bit about sex uh but but i think it could apply more generally is that sometimes if the thing that you want is something that's a bit more masculine you know everything else equal blah 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 then it's somehow we ourselves sometimes get suspicious of it, right? Uh, and certainly other people might get suspicious of it because, like, oh, well, you would say that. You know, there's a kind of, well, of course, you would say that. You're a guy, right? And as if that's somehow a bad thing. I'm like, well, yeah, but I am a guy. Right? <laughs> uh, and so if I want something in part because I'm a guy, yeah, why is that necessarily bad? And I'm not saying, I think we do this, it sounds like you've had that we do this as much to ourselves as other people do it to us, is that we we put an asterisk next to male desires and wants, which is a little bit like potentially problematic. And that I think is maybe causing some of these a lot of these issues that men are facing because they're they're locked in an internal conflict in many cases between these desires and these wants and these feelings and these kind of sense of themselves and these these legacies, these traditions or whatever, and the and the reality of the world around them. And so that disconnect I think is cool. And that causes sort of serious mental health problems at, at worst. Well, absolutely. Because I mean, the loneliness of thought, not being alone, but the loneliness of those thoughts is the you know, starting gun to anxiety and depression. Because if we're stuck with it, it just aggregates into being, you know, more thoughts being aggregated over time. And I think that, you know, that's why men in their 40s and 50s can start to feel uh, fairly desperate about the world. And can spiral into a, a sense of negativity, which then spirals into being 60s and 70s and then retiring and feeling, well, completely unworthy because the thing that the only thing that they did feel worthy about was working. Right. They put all their eggs, they put all their eggs in that basket. They looked at Fiona Shan's work. She's an Australian psychologist who looked at suicidal men, men who mostly had actually taken their own lives through suicide and looked at the notes and communications and uh, messages that they sent uh prior uh, and in particular she looked at self-descriptions and she found that the two words that those men used to describe themselves most commonly were useless and worthless now of course this is a highly tragically self-selected sample of people but nonetheless it speaks to something i think that's incredibly important which is the universal human need to be needed and if you start to feel surplus to requirements, you start to feel unneeded, you start to feel like, I'm not sure my kids need me, I'm not sure my wife or partner needs me, I'm not sure my community needs me, 
I'm not sure my employer needs if you've even got an employer. I'm not I'm just I'm basically I'm just not sure that this world, this social world around me is better off with me than it wouldn't be without me. And so that sense of a loss of purpose and being needed, I think is huge. And I actually quote this psychologist, uh, maybe an anthropologist in my book, where he's saying that many men lack a sense of ontological security. And I tease that and say, it's not a great bumper sticker. I sort of conjured up an image of like thousands of men marching, shouting, what do we want? Ontological security. (laughs) It's not great. But nonetheless, the thought that lies behind it, a sense of ontological security, is a sense of having a secure grounding of the of your place in the world, mm. right? Knowing who you are, how that connects to the world around you, how it's rooted, and and how you, as a result of that, f- feel that sense of neededness, being needed, and, and having a purpose. That's what ontology is. It's just a sense of like being. Ontology just means being, right? And we're human beings. Not just human doing of being. So if you have a sense of like, this is who I am and, and this is why I matter and this is how... and so I thought it was right. I think that lack of sense, that unmooring that's taken place for a lot of men with the taking away of those really clear roles that men had before, which had the deep problem of being sexist and unfair, the loss of many roles in the, the labor market, to some extent, uh, even the loss of a sense of being respected in popular culture. I mean, I think it's true. It's overstated at this point, but it's true that men are very often seen as kind of a bit like the dads are always idiots in the sitcoms and all the Kens in the Barbie movie were, you know, with the one exception, I think, of the gay character, but but they were generally like very unsympathetic, like couldn't be a good Ken, right? And so there's just kind of sense of just like just that semi-pathologization in some ways of these roles just I think has left a lot of men rightly feeling a bit unmoored, a bit untethered, mm. a bit unsure. And that's created many of the problems that, that we've been talking about here. And that's why it's not just a policy problem, but it's the cultural problem as well. And and just as a culture being able to sort of speak up positively about the roles of boys and men without in any way being negative about women and girls is just huge. And I'll, give you, I'll give you one more example. I'm, I'm a bit obsessed at the moment with smoke jumpers. You know what smoke jumpers are? Yeah, see, because you're British, because you're British. But um, uh, smoke jumpers are people who parachute into wildfires. Their job is to be dropped by parachute, usually sometimes from helicopters, uh, into very remote areas that are suffering from a wildfire, which would take a long time to get to any other way, right? And there's, uh, I think, there's about seven or eight hundred in the US. Two different departments, uh, and they have to survive for days. Sometimes they have camping gear and firefighting gear, and so they're dropped into the middle of wildfires to try and. It's very dangerous work, and as far as I can tell, a handful of them are women. Right, it's hard to get good data on this, but it looks like an incredibly small number of women. Right, uh, are women. Uh, it just turns out, and I don't think that's largely because of sexism. I think it's just at that point it is a bit of revealed preference. It turns out that it's just harder to persuade women to jump out of a plane into a fire than it is to persuade men. Now, I don't want to tell you that I'm going to do that. So this don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I have no inclination to do that. But it does turn out that there are more men that do it. Right. Point of the story is coming, which is that NPR, the equivalent of the BBC over here, did a story about the pay of smoke jumpers and did an extended interview with a smoke jumper and their experience. 
you probably know where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. It was a woman, right? Uh, and so you think, and I kind of know what the NPR, NPR producers were thinking. They were thinking, well, it's a very, very, very male role, right? It's like 99% male or something. I mean, you don't want people, you know, we want to break that gender stereotype. We want people to know that women can parachute into fires too. So we're going to do this with a woman. But then I thought, what if I'm one of the 99% of smoke jumpers who's a guy? And I tune into NPR and it's a woman. A bit the same with the 9-11 firefighters, all the firefighters that died were men. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just like, it's okay, I think, to just allow, give ourselves room to just say, you know what, guys do this and it's great. <laughs> we don't have to just, uh, and it's a small, tiny, tiny, tiny example, but, uh, but we have to be careful. To be careful, we're not either advert- inadvertently sending this message that like, when guys do bad shit, Absolutely, we're going to cover that to the hilt, as we should. Right. But when there are guys doing good stuff, like saving us all from wildfires, we have to interview one of a handful of women to do that. And one of the other talking points, and I don't like the term men's rights, as you can probably tell, but um, one of the talking points of the MRAs, the men's rights activists, is have you ever noticed that when there's a bad behavior that's typically done by men, it is it retains its gender, gender rights. It's always so no one you can say gunman, right? Right. But when they do good stuff like fight fires it has to become firefighters so their point is that we gender neutralize positive things that men do and we remain and we keep the gender label and the first time i heard that i was like really and i was rolling my eyes at it a bit and then i thought well actually that's kind of true (laughs) i'm not saying we should be firemen again i don't want to be misinterpreted but it's just it's just for me it's just a reminder for us all to just be careful and be compassionate and empathetic and not start from any kind of presumptions about one being better than the other. Absolutely. And that cancelling men is dangerous, right? Cancelling men is going to be a, is a dangerous thing to do. It's a... Um, We've got to do something with them. There are these kind of women-only feminist utopias from Herland through to uh, the Rick and Morty episode, uh, Raising Gazathorpe. And... The issue is always in those, what do you do with the men, right? So you create a feminist utopia of women, women-only feminist utopia, but it's like, what do, and then it's a whole reproduction thing, but uh, leave that aside, what do you do with the men? And the question, what do we do with men, is the question every human culture has always had to answer and to try and come up with as positive and pro-social an answer to that question as possible. And we should not be hubristic enough to think that we can be the first culture in human history not to have a good answer to the question of what men are for the question has the answers have to change but the question has to be asked and answered and that's part of the problem now i think is this sense of like what are men for what do we do with the guys (laughs) is at hand and being answered right now as you said earlier with andrew tate and some of the you know some of the more uh, unhelpful bordering on, I think it's closer to when you can say poisonous, but just really retrograde, reactionary ideals of masculinity are rearing up is because they are at least answering the question of what, how to be a man. Mm. And the fact that they're getting so many people coming to them is because they're answering it. That's a poignant way to end. Thank you very much for coming on. And just before we do end, Richard, could you just give a signaling to our listeners and where to find out more about you and your book? 
Yes, well, my book is Of Boys and Men. It's published you know, in all the usual places. And I'm excited to say that I've just created a new think tank in the US called the American Institute for Boys and Men. It's the first and only nonpartisan think tank devoted to the issues of boys and men. Uh, and so you can find that at AIBM.org. And I'm hoping that that will be the first of many such organizations that are doing this kind of work. Amazing. Well, thank you for all the work that you do. And thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Peter. Really appreciate the conversation. Pleasure. So thank you for tuning into the Privileged Man podcast. If you feel a resonance with our message and are keen to join a globally connected community of men committed to nurturing and elevating their mental wealth, I invite you to explore further. Visit our website, theprivilegedman.com, where you'll find enriching testimonials of men who have become a part of this empowering movement. Remember the journey to becoming a privileged man, a truly privileged man, one with elevated mental wealth, starts with your next action step. And that step could be just a click away. Thank you again for your time. And I'm looking forward to having you with us in our next episode.